Today's podcast, Trent Dilfer on his Monday visit, what he saw from the Bills versus Brady. Kind of good versus great, some quarterbacks. How would Elway stack up today? And uh, a little bit on the number one high school quarterback being talked about right now, who's actually not a high school quarterback anymore, but one of the most highly recruited guys that is leaving Ohio State and headed to Texas. And you know we're going to do it. The final F1 event, Max Verstappen, world champ, going abroad, Kevin Clark. It's Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter-player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. I'm going to run through a quick open before we get to Trent Dilfer and then going abroad with Kevin Clark. Uh, I'm going to admit some weekend. I think these are weekend confessions, right? That's kind of what I want to tell you because I went into Friday, Saturday, Sunday, basically this week 14 of the NFL going, all right, reading stuff, prepping up, going, all right, this is how I feel. And basically the first one was with Buffalo going out to Tampa Bay. I'm like, can we just get the Bills to have a respectable loss? Can we have a loss where I feel like, all right, this is a good Bills team. I'm okay with it. And you know what? We got a respectable loss. They got it to overtime. But I think the 24-3 part is more alarming because I'm going to tell you all the time, and it's not always consistent. It has to do with how I view the game, which may be the same or completely different from the way you view the game. And a lot of times our own personal bias is what motivates how we um, process a game in this. Because if you're a Bills fan, you're thinking, hey, this is great. We went out to Tampa, took them to overtime, might be the best team in the NFC. You know, again, I would lean Arizona, maybe Green Bay ahead of them, but certainly Tampa is in that conversation. Uh, that's great. I don't know. I don't know that that was great. Um, and, and Sean McDermott, after the game, too, kind of lamenting the first half, second half offensive approach. Zero handoffs to running backs in the first half. Uh, I think the 24-3 thing for this is more damning than it is that Allen threw the ball a million times. You actually had 100 pass attempts combined in this game, um, especially not being able to close it out. I, I think the human nature part of it, as I've said, for the better teams that get up big, they're going to relent a little bit, and then all of a sudden you're moving the football and you feel like you're in it, and the really reason that you're in it is the defense just is not as engaged every possession when they're up three scores. So the Bills, I mean, when's the last good win here? Is it week five against Kansas City when Kansas City was a mess? And that's kind of the college football resume stuff that I always despise, is that if you watch every single week and you have a good sense, like Wisconsin's a perfect example. When is a Wisconsin uh, win against Wisconsin good? Because beating Wisconsin late in the season 
is a lot different than beating Wisconsin when I thought they were absolute mess. I think Notre Dame falls into that category too. If you're watching every single week, you can you know keep a sense of this. So when Buffalo beats Kansas City, when we thought week five, wow, that's a really nice win for the Bills, and we saw Kansas City was a disaster, both offensively and defensively, and now defensively they've been crazy for six weeks, and Mahomes gets going against the Raiders here a little bit. You're like, so was that even a good win in week five? Now the Bills... They're probably going to end up with 10 or 11 wins here. They got Carolina at New England. Good luck there. But then Atlanta in the Jets. Um, but you know, looking back, remember the Colts beat the Bills in Buffalo 41-15 and we couldn't figure out how the hell that happened? Maybe that was the warning. Maybe that was the real thing here, that this imbalanced thing with a, with a franchise quarterback in Allen who was in a boot apparently after running around all day. He had over 420 yards offense. He had 100 yards rushing on top of everything else. Um, so you got it to overtime, but you lost to Brady because Brady's the best quarterback as far as QBR is concerned right now in the NFL. So I don't know that we got the good loss. It'll look like a good loss. Maybe you're selling yourself if you're a Bills fan on that being a good loss. But I think we all, if you're being very honest about it, going, this is a long stretch now of a Bills team that just isn't what we thought they were supposed to be. Maybe we got kind of Carolina Denver on them, where Buffalo, we liked the talent better, that the schedule at the beginning of the year was just easy and defensively the numbers were off the charts. They were like 30% better on some of the differentials for defensive things. And now we're seeing against good teams and their one-sided, one-dimensional offensive team here that they're actually not even close to being in that top tier. Again, t- close is different. They're going to end up with a decent record because the schedule gets easier other than New England. But I don't, whatever my confession was with that one, I don't think it delivered, even though on paper an overtime loss in Tampa tells you that's a good loss. Um, speaking of other things that are going on here, banned Jacksonville's banned. Both New York teams are banned. I thought about banning Chicago, but the fields part of this thing is at least interesting. So if there's a Thursday nighter or Monday nighter, I don't know what the rest of the schedule. I'm a week to week guy on this one game at a time. But you know, the Giants, I was reading about them. They're 22 and 54 since 2017. Fewest wins except for the Jets, who are 21 and 54 going into this week. So you get the Jets and the Giants. You know, we could sit there and get up and have a tease being like Zach Wilson's future and Lane Kiffin as offensive coordinator back in 2025. Like, that's where the story's going. Um, Zach had a couple throws yesterday that don't even make any sense, as bad as the rest of the franchise is. And then how many years are we going to keep doing the Giants breakdown of like, you know, they just don't seem like they have enough talent and I don't like to play calling. It's the same shit over and over and over again. By the way, the urban thing where I felt like there was a very anti-college football guy coming in the NFL world thing that does absolutely exist. The NFL people, media, and former players, very, very protective of that separation. I'm out on defending any of the urban stuff anymore. I'm done. Um, I thought that's what I was fighting. I wasn't necessarily saying like, hey, awesome, urban. Um, I just felt like it was the bias against him that I would always point out. I'm out. I'm out. So uh, Jacksonville joins the New York teams in the band list. Okay. Another confession. I wanted to go into Cincinnati and San Francisco saying I knew I was right about Cincinnati because we heard me talking about how I thought I was going to be right about him last week. And it didn't work out that way when they turned the ball over to the Chargers in the second half, despite having a huge deficit. I was like, are they going to get back into this? So what do they do? They immediately turn it over, give some free points to San Francisco to start the game. Cincinnati loses in overtime to San Francisco. They're now a nine seed, seven and six, two and four in their last six games. Uh, they're <laughs> when they're down. 20 to six. It's kind of like the Buffalo thing where I'm like, well, they got it to overtime and came back. I don't know, man. I just think I'm wrong about them. I like them. I like Burrow. When they, when they came back, the game tying touchdown, I was like, I knew it. I knew this team was tough. 
where that was definitely different from the way that I processed Buffalo, which may seem inconsistent, but I can only tell you how I process it sitting at home watching this stuff. Um, but I'm like, man, I knew it. I knew it. And then I was like, nope, I'm wrong. They lost the game. San Francisco's won four or five, by the way. Uh, and that Arizona loss that was all the backups at quarterback and wide receiver, that was a perception loss for San Francisco that counted as three losses. That was just a loss, but the perception of that loss, considering the matchup, felt like three losses. And it's been such a perception loss in that game that we've kind of ignored the fact that San Francisco um, has put some together here. Garoppolo had some big numbers. And uh, when you look at what Nick Bose is doing for them and destroying games late. Chase had a couple drops as well that I didn't think were great. Oh, look, I still like Burrow a lot, but this this Cincinnati infatuation for me, that confession, I'm admitting it out loud, and I just think I'm I might be entirely wrong about him, despite the fact of how I felt like their profile told us that they were going to start turning some things around. And by the way, uh, Cincinnati's going to finish up with the fifth toughest schedule at Denver versus Baltimore versus Kansas City and at Cleveland. So certainly not easy and, easy and in third place in the division. Okay, final one, staying in the division, a confession. I felt like the bill was coming due for Baltimore. Um, eight and four with the loss, with uh, not converting the two-point conversion that Harbaugh explained. Not a huge deal there. I think Pittsburgh's so bad offensively, I probably would rather gone to overtime. Unless you love your matchup on the two-point play, and I know that Marlon Humphrey going out of corner led Baltimore in this situation to Harbaugh to believe that the right decision was to just go ahead and try to end it with two, but I don't think that Roethlisberger is going to exactly crush you down the field uh, missing a corner, but I get the point, all right? Not not a ton of angst about it, but I almost look at Baltimore's success to this point and the remaining schedule as an adjustable mortgage where it's like, all right, this has been a nice, this has been a good ride here, but guess what? Now that rate's adjusting, and now it's getting serious. So that's what I thought going into Cleveland, uh, even with Baker beat up in this one, that Lamar, you know, let's see what happens. Because they've had some close wins, uh, Baltimore has. Some weird wins, right? Um, The Lions win was weird. The Kansas City win was weird, right? Because you were like, wait, the whole Kansas City game, I'm like, this game's actually going to happen. They beat the Browns. Not that long ago, with four interceptions, where teams were winning those games like 2% of the time when your quarterback had four interceptions and they went ahead and won that. And then we saw the the, uh, the Miami game, right? So I thought this bill was coming due and that Cleveland would win it. And then we got another weird one because none of this matters because Lamar went out at the very beginning of the second quarter, 24-6 at the half. Baltimore gets back into this one. It's 24-22. They're down two points with the ball at their own 45. About a minute left there. They lose the game. Um but I'm just kind of off of Baltimore, but I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair because you can't really do anything with this result knowing that Lamar only played a quarter. Let's talk with somebody else about the NFL. It's Trent Dilfer. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now, by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can 
Talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did. And even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Here we go. Three, two, and one. Trent, let's start with a game that I talked about a bit here in the open, and that's Buffalo. You know, just trying to give us something. We're like, all right, give us something. Let us know that you're competitive, that you're still this team that at certain points we thought could come out of the AFC, and then they're down 24-3 at the half. Uh, they don't hand it off to any running backs. Then they get this game back to overtime. So I kind of was left with, is this actually something we should feel good about, or is the 24-3 the real part of this story? It's a great question because the Bills have kind of taken me on this emotional roller coaster ride. Like There's times I think they can win the AFC, and there's times I think they're going to lose in the first round. Um, and usually championship teams have more consistency to them. Um, so saying that, I, my, my big takeaway was that Josh Allen can throw you back into a game. And that is the hardest thing to do uh, as a quarterback in the NFL. I've said this before, I think with you is end a half, end a game down two scores. Like that's really, if you're just going to evaluate the difference between good and great in the NFL quarterback, that's what you look at. When the other team knows you have to throw it, they're trying to break down your protection schemes. They're showing you every different type of defense there is in the back end, and you can still make big boy throws over and over and over again. Uh, and Josh was able to do that. Um, they have the skill people to do it. They're able to protect well enough to do it. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm starting to think that with the Bills, they have to kind of play a frenetic, aggressive, offensive style from the jump. And when they try to be balanced, when they try to be traditional, uh, they stall. When they just open it up and say, hey, we got you know Superman, a quarterback, and we have these talented guys on the edges, and, and our offensive line is built to pass protect, we're at our best. Uh, and I think if they do that down here, down the stretch, I think you start seeing a more consistent Buffalo Bills offense. It was pretty clear, you know, McDermott, again, frustrated. I think he was frustrated that Belichick was getting all this love after that weird game on Monday night. And then with Dable at OC, you know, McDermott was like, well, I like what we did in the second half better. Um, and McDermott's a defensive guy so that there was a little bit more balance. But, I mean, we're still talking about 50-plus attempts here for Allen. What's that like in the game? You know, when and, and I can imagine it's probably a lot of Matt Rule and Joe Brady now being out at Carolina, although I think it has more to do with the quarterback talent there as opposed to just Joe Brady being terrible all of a sudden. But when it's when there's this disconnect from the booth to the sideline and the role all of you play where it's very clear the head coach is getting really tired of the way a game is being called. Yeah, that's a big question. I, and again, I, I'm not in I'm not on the phones. I, I don't know what's going on there. And I really don't know what McDermott's. Uh, overall perspective is I can only assume. Um, but to answer your question specifically, I, I think when I've always said this, the play caller and the quarterback have to be simpatico. They have to be on the same page. They have to think the same thoughts. Um, it's really, it's almost as weird as, as the quarterback has to be able to read the play caller's mind. So that's your Sean Payton. Drew Brees is a great example of that. I think you're seeing that with Rogers and LaFleur. I, You've seen it in the past with great quarterback um, play caller combinations, McDaniel, Brady, O'Brien, Brady, pretty much Brady and anybody. Um, 
The head coach is interesting in this dynamic because I think it's best and the quarterback has no idea what the head coach wants. Like I knew Tony wanted to be uh, really conservative in Tampa and that bothered me. Uh, now, I love Tony Dungy uh, and I admire him so much. But in the moment, I was frustrated because I knew he wanted to take the air out of the ball and that that affected me. So I think when the quarterback doesn't know what the conservative head coach wants, it's better. I think the the play caller has to bridge that gap and shield him from that. Uh, if there is a dynamic head coach play caller controversy going on. Uh, this is another clinic by Brady again. And one of the plays that didn't end up meaning anything because it was off center penalties and they, they replayed third down. I think it was the third and six He's getting rushed. Looks like he's going to get crushed. Gives you that little shoulder stuff. Resets, gets himself clear, and actually converted what would have been a first down. But again, like I said, offsetting penalties with this. He also had a couple runs, including the one, I think it was a, a two-yard to the sticks run where he got the first down. Um, I, I don't know what's going on with him. I feel like he's getting popped a little bit more, but he doesn't care at 44 years old. Are you seeing anything different? I'm going to take this a different direction. I'm going to answer a question. No, I, he just gets keeps getting better. He's a total freak. It's an aberration. I, I can't explain. Anybody tries to explain it, it doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. Because nobody's lived it. Like, nobody nobody can explain Tom Brady because we've never seen it before. We can only assume because we're watching some ESPN show of a little insight of what he's telling people. But even at that, I don't know if he's telling us the truth all the time. Um so I don't know what the heck's going on. He's better than he's ever been. And I have no, no way of explaining it. But here's what I, I here's what you got me thinking about. That player talking about the third and six was masterful Brady being a great short area athlete, even though he's not a very good athlete. And then you look at the Rodgers play last night where it's very similar. Like it, he gets rushed, he kind of pulls back and to the left and then doesn't scramble and then makes a big throw for a first down. And then you go to Allen and Burrow, uh, some Herbert stuff yesterday. And what hits me is that we always talk about the wrong things with quarterbacks uh, and their athleticism. The most important thing is how they play in conflict, how they play when it's all hitting the fan, how they maintain their poise, even though it's total chaos going around them. And, and Brady's the greatest example of that because he doesn't have the athleticism to just make something out of nothing, yet he makes something out of nothing in close quarters. And yesterday what struck me, and I probably watched as much NFL yesterday as I have in a long time um, with Red Zone and multiple TVs going and whatnot, and I just, what kept catching my eye was, oh, okay, that's good, that's good, that's great. Like, okay, that's good quarterbacking, oh, that's great quarterbacking. And the great quarterbacking all was built around the play you led this question with, that third and six pocket collapses quarterback kind of gets out of a gets out of jail. And then instead of going and running like his hair's on fire, he just kind of moves to the side, gets his eyes downfield, finds somebody open. And that's a big piece of this. It's not just getting away from the trouble and reestablishing yourself in a kind of a different pocket. It's being able to see downfield which guy's breaking open and do I have to throw him open? Is he open? Where do I throw the ball? And then executing on the throw. And I know I totally went off, off schedule here, but that was my biggest takeaway of 
of the NFL yesterday was how great some of this quarterbacking was and then just how good some of the quarterbacking was. But this morning, people are probably saying it's great because of the stats when really it was just kind of good. Did that make any Okay, sense? we know Brady was great. It, it does. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. But I, I need to give, go a little deeper on that. Then give me examples of, of great versus good and what you saw yesterday. Well, the play you mentioned, even though the play got called back, that was that was epic what Brady did on that play. I mean, it's just so hard. The, 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 if you haven't played the position, you have no idea how hard that was. I mentioned the Rodgers play, um, and I can't remember exactly where it was in the game, but he, his left tackle gets beat inside, and it looks like he's going to get sacked, and he kind of jumps backwards and raises the ball up over his head so the guy kind of comes underneath him, and then he just kind of slides to his left instead of going and running, and through all this, his focus never leaves downfield. Burrow, Burrow made one of the best plays of the day yesterday on the drive where he throw. He ends up throwing the touchdown to Chase in the back of the end zone to tie it. But a couple plays before that, he throws a ball down the left sideline uh, for a big completion of, I don't know, 30 yards or something. And he is going to get killed. And the guy's like on his arm. And even as he throws it, I look at my wife and I said, interception, because I thought that there's no way he could have gotten enough on the ball. And he just drops a dime in there on the left and on the left boundary. And to me, and again, I don't want to take this too esoterically, but it's those moments where you're like, oh, okay, that, that guy's going to be fine. He might make some mistakes. He might play crappy here or there, but if he can make that play in that moment, he's got the courage. He's got the ability. He's got the, the wherewithal to make that play, he's going to be just fine, and he's going to play for 10, 15 years and possibly win a Super Bowl and go to a bunch of Pro Bowls. That's how good those types of plays are. Yeah, the other one Rodgers had, too, was that one that was left where he threw it over you know, a trailing defender, and it was just yes. a little pop-up to the left. And yes. I just went, and even, you know, this is where Al Michaels separates himself and, you know, the moments where Collinsworth, and I know people give him a hard time, but, but they were both right. They're like, who throws that ball? Who's, who looks at that and goes, yeah, I got this. Well, yeah, I'll give you two more. Uh, the touchdown pass, Allen has, uh, I think it makes it 27-24 maybe. He has a free rusher coming off his left. It's an RPO, and that's the problem with RPOs, is sometimes you're, you're reading a guy, the line's blocking run, and then they bring an extra guy. So you're done. Like you're, you, There's nothing you can do except take one in the face and somehow get it out quick. And he kind of fakes the run gets hit, flicks its sidearm in the end zone all in one moment. I'm like, oh, okay, that was special. Uh, Herbert's throw where he's rolling to his right. And again, it's one of those who makes this throw. You know, he pulls up after rolling to his right, and he's going to get smoked and 65 yards to a guy that adjusted his route. That was not a go route. That was not a post route. That was an adjusted route. So the guy breaks it towards the back of the end zone, Herbert sees it all in one time and goes, oh yeah, his brain somehow thinks, I'm going to put my foot in the ground, I'm going to get smoked, and I'm going to rip this 65 yards in the air. Like These are things that you just see it. You're like, wow, okay, he can do that, then he can do a bunch of stuff that most people can't do. Like I love Kirk Cousins. I always defend him, but he can't do any of the things I just mentioned. Right? All these incredible plays that Allen, Brady, Herbert, Burrow made, Kurt doesn't make those plays, right? Um, most quarterbacks don't make those plays. So that's where you see kind of this, this uniqueness 
in how some quarterbacks play the position and how some can't. And by the way, I was one that couldn't. So I'm owning it. Like I would watch Brett Favre do things and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I, I don't, I'm pretty talented, but I can't do that. I'll never be able to do that. And I think you're seeing these other quarterbacks kind of go, oh yeah, I'm pretty good. And I make a bunch of money and I've been to a few pro bowls, but I can't, I can never do that. Um, therefore, oh, and he just did it like seven times in one game. I think that's a demoralizing thing about playing against some Mahomes, a Wilson, a Rogers, uh, Brady, even though it's different, is the other quarterback sits there and goes, oh, man, I, I'm never going to be able to do that. Therefore, I'm never going to be elite. Yeah, the Cousins one that you bring up, like I, I've had this thing for a while where when we watch a replay and we see stuff happen, we give the quarterback too much credit on deep balls. Like yep. We don't realize that a lot of times it's it's a trust in the receiver. It's a guy he likes in a 50-50 matchup, or it's uh, let me just throw it to this area, and then the receiver's adjusting underneath it so that on the replay it looks like, oh, he dropped a dime in there. And you're like, not really. The receiver made the play on this thing. That's why I thought the Bryce Young throw to Jamison Williams against Georgia was so insane because it was a stop-go. Williams, uh, Jamison Williams, full speed and – like the ball was there so I go that was actually like one of those deep balls where the quarterback deserves all the credit because I saw one from you know and again good for Cousins for getting the ball out there which I think has made him a little bit more aggressive uh, especially this season with somebody like Justin Jefferson because he trusts him so much but there's a throw that he has where he seriously doesn't even know where he's throwing the football he just knows he has Jefferson like on the inside of the hash marks with no safety help and he's just like let me get this out there and it works which i actually like that kirk has done some more of that stuff but the deep ball thing it's a really good point you're bringing up like herbert's deep ball yesterday is not because the receiver that is that is because herbert was actually one of the few guys physically able to even get it out there with that much and top of it with that much juice on the ball for a deep throw which is really a game changer well that's you right okay i'll go another weird direction um you can see this, and, and I challenge everybody listening to start looking for this. There's a way a deep ball finishes. Um, some deep balls finish, they're kind of falling apart, and the receiver goes and makes a play on a deep ball that's falling apart. And then there's a deep ball where the ball almost looks like it's speeding up at the end. And, and just close your eyes right now and think about, you're probably a football junkie. You've probably watched thousands of uh, hours of football on Sundays and Monday nights. You're probably the fan that watches the Thursday night game that hardly any people in the NFL actually watch the Thursday night game. Um, and you go, oh, yeah, I, I've never had it put that way. There's so many guys that their deep ball, it's going, it looks good, and it just starts falling apart, and then the receiver has to go make some spectacular play. And then there's guys that throw the deep ball, and every time, even if it misses, it almost looks like the the ball's accelerating at the end. Like it has energy at the end. It finishes different. Russell Wilson, in my opinion, is the greatest deep ball thrower that's ever lived. Um, his ball, as it comes down, it, you know, he throws it really high, but it's starting to come down. It almost looks like it's accelerating and it speeds the receiver up. Uh, Herbert, I would start putting in this category. He's a phenomenal deep ball thrower for this reason. There's a guy named Jeff Blake in the 90s. That was an incredible deep ball thrower. Um, yeah. he's, it just looks different. And 
Uh, I'm, I'm, listen, I've never been a Burroughs going to be one of the greatest players in the NFL guy. I thought he was a really good player. He's got a bunch of extra intangible stuff. He's a winner. He's a tough guy. He's a great leader. I love Joe Burrow, but I never thought his talent was anything to like drop your jaw at. I'm starting to see it in his deep ball. Like now I'm starting. Okay. What's the differentiator about Joe Burrow? He can play under pressure. Like he plays under conflict very well. And his deep ball kind of accelerates at the end, like the greatest of all time. Um, I don't know. I know I took this. I know this is probably my worst interview I've ever done with you because I've taken you all over the place. But that's what stuck out to me yesterday. These guys playing in conflict and then there's this difference in how some of these deep balls finish. You mentioned Russell Wilson. Uh, They've won two now. The San Francisco game was very weird. He was clean against the Texans, which you'd expect. Um, And we knew he the Green Bay game was bad. Arizona game was bad. The finger probably still an issue here. Uh, it's weird though because you know Mike Sando, who we like having on the pod from the Athletic, has always kind of looked at that let Russ cook index. And ever since they did that and they brought in the new offensive coordinator, Seattle's just been a worse football team. Is there anything that you've seen? And I'm asking this without any lean whatsoever. Anything specific to Russell Wilson? Because I, I'm with you from a tr- sheer talent standpoint. And I don't like saying, hey, this is the only guy in the league that can make this throw. Because when we're talking about those throws, there's probably like four to five guys that can actually do some of this stuff because they are that special. And Wilson, for me, as a talent, has always been that guy that I trust him to find ways to kind of move the sticks when you need it to happen. So I don't know if it's just the finger. I don't know. You know, I don't love that he blames the offensive line. It feels like indirectly more than some other quarterbacks do. Anything jump out to you in the return since the injury? that feels different because the numbers have definitely been different. I think the fingers part of it. Um, I don't think he has this. He's not playing with the same confidence. It's probably system finger. He's always played under a a kind of a sketchy offensive line. Um, I think, I think Russell's been in his best and I've had this conversation with the let Russ cook thing. I actually don't think he's at his best when they're like fully letting them um, cook on a massive scale, I think there's when they, I don't, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to figure this out, but it, when they're like, they're hyper aggressive with Russ, but still just don't go overboard with it. I, I still think they're at their best when they have some type of balance. Um, but I don't, I think Russ is at his best. What I'm getting at is I think Russ is at his best when he's running the show. He's not being micromanaged. I think he's fine being balanced if it's him in control. Uh, it, it seems at times this year, pre-injury and post-injury, that it's being controlled from the sideline. And maybe it goes back to that first conversation. It's like he knows that there's a push to be more conservative than he wants it to be. And you can kind of sense that in his aura. I don't know if there's anybody besides Brady I trust more than Russell Wilson. Like, I just trust him at the end of the game. I trust him at the end of the half. I just think he's a, a generational type player. Um, but when he's being sequestered, when that's being stuck, when he's not allowed, he's when he's not allowed to be him, I think they're very pedestrian in how they play offensively. So um, there's something, there's a there there that I don't know what it is. Something's not right. Um, but I trust Russell to get it figured out if they somehow can make a run here for that last playoff spot. Yeah, and the Texans' numbers overall are really good, which you would hope against the Texans. So maybe this thing is turning in the right direction. But he does not run the football um, this year. He doesn't. Um, And that's what I'm saying. I don't know if that's a him thing or if that's – 
they took it out of the offense. And, and again, I try not to at this stage, cause I don't do this for a living anymore. I try not to get caught up in narratives. I try not to just like read something, go, Oh, that guy knows what he's talking about. So that's the direction I'm going to go. I'd rather say, I don't know. Like, I really don't know. I haven't talked to Russell. I haven't sat down and like studied them. I don't know what their off season playbook look like. Uh, you can see by their run game that there's not a lot of zone elements to it out of the gun where he could be reading it. Um, which tells me it was intentional to maybe take him out of the run game. Um, but they've been at their best. And and most of these teams have been now when the quarterback-driven runs are a dangerous part of the offense uh, because the defense has to prepare in short yard situations, red zone situations so much for it. Like you have to devote a lot of practice resources to defending the quarterback-driven run game, basically the zone read. Everybody dumbs it down and calls it the zone read. It's more than that, but... Um, and when you don't see their base run game coming off of looks where that where there could be some read elements to it, you're like, huh, I wonder if that's intentional. I doubt it's the quarterback because quarterbacks that ru- have grown up scrambling and running the ball like to run the ball. Um, it gives them an extra sense of pride. Listen, quarterbacks want to score points. They want to move the chains. They want to score points. I've never known a quarterback that's a good one. I know some soft ones that were like this, but – I've never known any good ones. They're like, oh, no, no, no. You're not going to run me on third and three. Uh, no, no, no. I'm not going to scramble and go get us a first down. Like the quarterbacks that I grew up with before the quarterback run-driven thing was a thing. Uh, the ones now that I've been around, the ones that have come up through Elite 11 or playing the NFL, it's part of their DNA. It's who they, ident- they identify themselves as a great quarterback that can also beat you with their feet. And they're not going to ever ask not to do that. Um, the running quarterback thing, though, is is interesting because, you know, Elway was somebody that I grew up watching. And now I feel like historically he does not he does not hang uh, statistically with the way some other guys do. And first of all, like you can't use completion percentage uh, to compare today's quarterbacks of the last 10 years or so in comparison to what Elway was doing in his prime because the throw, the whole throw package was completely different. And it's a little bit, the analogy that I used was like, there's a handful of shooters that are ahead of Larry Bird on the all-time shooting percentage from three that you'd be like, wait, what? Like, what is, that doesn't make any sense. Um, where does Elway, like for you, I don't know if you're an Elway guy, I, my guess would be you are. But like, where would Elway be in comparison to somebody like Breeze, where Breeze statistically is going to look like one of the great quarterbacks of all time? <laughs> yeah, you can't use stats. Uh, I'm probably a pretty good voice in this because I don't ever try to defend myself. You know what I mean? I'm not one of those crotchy old quarterbacks that's trying to say something so, he's, so he looks better. Um, but I grew up <laughs> with these guys. You know what I mean? I grew up play, watching and then playing against uh, that class of 83. Uh, and then, you know, played with that crappy generation, like 2000 and 2007, where they were really outside of far there weren't a bunch of great quarterbacks. And, um, now this next generation that's going to go down is legendary. And in the midst of all that, I, when I said 2000, 2007, I admitted Brady, I'm sorry, Brady far, there's a right. handful of guys, right? There's like five and Manning's in there, right? Yeah. Manning was in there. Everything else is kind of pedestrian. Um, John Elway, Steve Young in today's football would be as good as there is. I don't want to compare. I mean, you just, you can't, there's no way to possibly explain 
how good those two would be given today's offensive resources, uh, both scheme and uh, play calling, um, just how the league is formatted. I mean, John Elway played with the mo- one of the most conservative head coaches of all time. I mean, that was the conversation. If you're old enough to remember this, Elway's gripes were always around, let me go play football in the middle of the game. I always have to play it at the end of the half and at the end of the game to bring my team back. Why can't I play this way in the first quarter? Why can't I play this way in the third quarter? Uh, Steve Young, given him the zone read, it put him in Lamar Jackson's uh, offense. You know, let's not forget Steve Young beat Jerry Rice in a 40. He was legit 4-4. Steve Young is a legit 4-4. He's as fast as fast is in the NFL ever uh, and could throw the eyes out of it. So put him in that offense and and you're going to have the greatest player on the planet. Um, so yeah, the Elway conversation is really interesting because statistically it, it it's, he's going to be forgotten here in 10 years if people still keep using statistics to quantify how good a quarterback is. Um, John Elway was sequestered for the majority of his career. It wasn't until he got with Shanahan and his body was old and broken that he actually got to play the, the position the way he always wanted to play it. Would you take Elway over Montana? Oh, it's just so different. Um, that was a discussion back in the day, right? I grew up in the Bay Area, so we were all kind of Joe fans. And um, but I'm I'm old enough to remember John at Stanford. Uh, I don't know if I'd take him over it, but I'd put him as equals. I mean, I think those two guys were equals. Is there anyone of the last ten years that you take over Elway? I imagine Brady. Yeah, I mean, Brady's in a class of his own just because of longevity, the amount of Super Bowls, how he's made everybody around him better his entire career. Um, no, I, I would say this. I love this group of quarterbacks, and I think I'm as bullish on the modern-day quarterback as anybody is, but I, I would not say that any of them are better than John Elway or better than Steve Young or better than Jim Kelly. Um, I still don't think Favre gets enough credit I think Favre's, I mean, I had to see, I watched it. <laughs> I was on the other sideline against Favre during his three MVPs. Uh, Brett did things that the game had never seen before. Uh, I hope those guys don't get forgotten because these these stats are going to get so inflated over time just because how football's changed. These guys also did it. I think we had this conversation a few weeks ago, and I, and I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's oversaid to say that they played a different type of physical game. And, and your modern-day quarterback, Brady's admitted this, Breeze has admitted it, the guys that play, kind of cross generations. Um, there was a time when you had to be a tough guy to play quarterback. And I'm not taking anything away from these quarterbacks, but they don't have to be tough. They don't play nearly as banged up as the old school guys did. I mean, at the in the old days, it was cut the head off the snake, right? Everybody's defense's job was to yeah. hurt the quarterback, and it was kind of allowed. Um, so that's a whole other element to this, that your Kellys, your Aikmans, your uh, Far for a period, your, did I say Elway, um, who are some other great ones that were back then? Young, Montana. Uh, these guys had to do it constantly hurt, taking 15 to 20 kill shots a game, um, uh, you know, throwing the ball when you couldn't throw the ball across the middle of the field because a John Lynch would kill you if you did. 
uh, Atwater. Um, you know, think about some of these great Ronnie Lott. Think about some of these great safeties in the 80s and 90s that were just literally decapitate guys as they're coming across the middle. Like you didn't throw seam benders uh, unless it was wide open. The middle of the field is basically closed all the time. So you're throwing the ball out outside the numbers. Um, they just played a totally different game. Uh, and, I, and I've talked to a few of them. They'll never go on record saying this because they're going to seem like they're, they're grumpy old men. But most of them look at the game now and be like, oh, my gosh. Like, that's, that's just cheating. It's just cheating to play modern-day quarterback. It's so much easier than it was back when, when we played. I had Steve Young on three years ago, and he gave me this breakdown where, you know, I know that it's just, it's so uncool when an older generation talks about it. And look, the NBA has done it to themselves, where everybody from that 90s to early 2000s run has tried to somehow say this version of, of a human basketball player's regression, which is, you know, look, there's some things that I don't like, and no one can make an entry pass anymore, but, um, it's just ridiculous. It hasn't evolved that way. But when Steve Young came on with me a few years ago and he talked about the middle of the field, he just started laughing. He was like audibly laughing out loud about the whole thing. And it's impossible to be anything but convinced once he got done talking about it, just for those specific reasons. Hell, there was a couple of times watching Steve Young in the 90s where I thought he was dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling because he wasn't. But there was a couple of times where I went, how is he going to get up? How is this guy going to keep playing? And he, you know, he'd be looking out his ear hole and he'd be looking to the wrong sideline for the call. So well, there, there were times I'll use my again, because I think your audience knows I never I, I think people know that I'm never trying to pump up myself. Yes. I saw back tears. I was in so much pain weekly. I was fighting back tears. And guess what? I had to go play the next snap. And guess what? The same guy hit me again. <laughs> it's like it was again and again and again and again and again and again. Like I, I used to chart how many times, not that you got sacks. We don't give a crap about sacks. You don't want to take sacks. But like your body, when you wake up on a Monday morning, and you have black and blue lines down your legs and you're, you have black and blue around your ribs and you can't lift your arm and your neck's all tweaked and you sitting in the, I mean, it would take us till Wednesday to be able to practice because you would take, and I'm not exaggerating here, 13 to 20 huge shots in a game. If you threw it 35 times and then they would land on you. And that's when they really tried to hurt you was they would hit you, but then they would kind of lift you and, and pound you. Their 300 pounds would just drop to the turf with you and just compress your body like an accordion. And by the way, we weren't upset and we didn't complain about it. That was part of the job. Um, I mean, I, I remember getting up and looking at defenders going, oh, Robert Porsche from the Lions was one of the great pass rushers I played against. And he was trying to hurt me every single game. And then after the end of the game, he'd kind of put his arm around me and say, hey, you, you survived that one. Like that was the conversation. So I only use that so you understand what Elway went through. What you So you understand what Aikman went through. So you understand what Young went through. What you now Montana Joe was interesting. He never really got hit hard <laughs> until late in his career. The the famous Giants hit, but Bill did such a great job of protecting him with the quick passing game, and he did a great job protecting himself. Um, but that's what that generation. Jim Kelly took as many kill shots as you could imagine, and they just kept getting up. 
Like that's what that generation played with in the position. And you couldn't throw the ball across the middle of the field. Like, again, your throw catalog and your reads were so different because you weren't about to get your receiver killed. Um, it's just different. And I'm not taking anything away from the modern day quarterback. I hope you hear me saying that. Uh, but you just can't compare them. You can't just say, oh, gosh, so-and-so in 2021 is so much better than John Elway was because look at his completion percentage and look at his yards per attempt and look at touchdown pass to interception ratio and blah, 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 blah. Like, it's just, you can't compare it. The other thing too was you didn't have these like 10 to 12 free completions to start every game. Like every game, these modern day quarterbacks have these screens and these perimeter plays and these RPOs and, where, where they're going to start the game with 12 completions. Like, no, you the first time you might have thrown the ball if you're John Elway was the second series of the game on third and 12. That's your first throw. And guess what you're throwing? Double 20-yard comebacks on the outside with a guy going down the middle in case it's cover two and the safeties get really wide. And it's really like, oh, well, I got to throw it over this guy to that guy early enough, and they know what we're throwing. Like, there wasn't a lot of this great, passing game scheme advantage that these guys have now urban i'm gonna let you go in any direction you want to go with what's going on with urban meyer in jacksonville i don't know uh, again i i don't i'm not afraid to say i don't know and i and i know a lot of people there but i'm not getting on the horn going hey what's going on did he really say that in a meeting it sounds so arrogant like i just don't trust what's coming out of buildings these days um I know Urban Meyer from his time as a college coach. And I know that he's a hard coach. He's a demanding coach. It's hard to coach for him, but it was never degrading. Uh, His coaches liked coaching for him because they were successful and they became better coaches. His players are very loyal to him. So the players that played for him uh, in college are very loyal to him. Uh, He has won everywhere he's won. Now, I don't think that would be... If what he if what is being reported he said to his coaches is true, he probably regrets having that meeting. That's not the Urban Meyer I know from how he's coached his coaches before. Um, so I, again, I, I can only comment off the Urban Meyer that I knew from his college days. And yes, very demanding, very hard, edgy at times. Um, you know, his coaches. Uh, famously have to work a little bit harder for him than they would another coach, but he gets results doing it. Um, so I, again, I don't want to make a comment out of ignorance. I don't know what's going on in that building. I do know that sometimes it's very uncomfortable uh, to get the most out of people. And I'm sure that's his intent. He's trying to get the most out of his staff and the most out of his players. And he's probably very frustrated with himself based on some mistakes he made this season uh, and with what's going on in Jacksonville. All right, that's very responsible. Let's just play a role out here, though. You're OC, and and he calls you a loser. How would you handle no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, if that happened, I, I, I would be pissed. I mean, I'd be okay. pissed. <laughs> uh, all right, two quick things before we let you go. Quinn Ewers, who I got to see your Elite 11 out here at, uh, I think that was Costa, the, the high school here in the South Bay, your crew was nice enough um, 
all those guys were great to me to let me come out and watch all the guys throw. And yours was the Texas kid that early enrolled to Ohio State. Looks like he made a ton of money on the NAL and now is gone and heading back to Texas. Um, he's got the Joe Dirt hair. I made a comment about how much I loved his footwork watching him go through the drills, and then I was immediately told by one of your quarterback coaches his footwork's terrible. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. We're going to put my my whistle away for the rest of the duration here today. Um, to give me a little breakdown on on a kid we've been talking about for two years we haven't seen play yet. He is as uniquely gifted as a thrower as you'll find. Uh, maybe in the history of the time we've done Elite 11, he might be as gifted as a thrower as we've ever seen. He, he's got this, when it comes off his finger, um, it is, it, it's a wow factor. Uh, he he can throw wherever he's looking. Uh, he grew up throwing the ball a ton, so he understands the passing game. Um, it's not a mistake that he was one of the most heavily recruited guys in the last 10 years. Um, but, and this is always my but, uh, if you play this thing out from our experience with Elite 11 and then through college and then the NFL, uh, how you throw a football is typically not in the top seven to ten most important things. It's all the other stuff. And, and instead of wasting too much time, it's just a bunch of stuff. Leadership, tangible qualities, um, how you see the field, toughness. Uh, accountability, do you make people around you better, blah, 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 blah. A lot of that is unknown with Quinn. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just unknown. Um, there's a, there's dozens and dozens of talented quarterbacks that never make it because they think throwing's enough. And I hope that isn't the trap for him. He's got to become a much better player. Uh, he's got to become uh, more dynamic with his feet. He's a cruiser. He just kind of cruises through things. Um, he's that's going to have to change. He can change. I think he's a good enough athlete to change. Um, but that stuff has to change. Um, so I I'm in wait and see mode, uh, with him at Texas. Uh, I, I think there's, he, he needs to change to become the player that everybody thinks he can become because of his wild talent throwing the football. Um, I guess that's the the easiest evaluation. I mean, that's the most comprehensive eva evaluation I can give on uh, his futures. He needs to get better at a lot of stuff. Okay, we'll end on this note. Probably your favorite college athlete going right now, I assume, is your daughter, Tori, on the Louisville volleyball team. They're headed to the Final Four. We know this has been quite a journey for her, transferring out, and I was reading about her this morning. She she is a determined person and very impressive in almost every quote. What's this like for you? It's been pretty amazing, Ryan. I, you know, I couldn't be more proud of all three of them. You know, all three have, have had uh, incredible journeys with volleyball. Tories is the most highlighted because they're in the final four and they're undefeated. I mean, they're having a legendary season. Um, she's a, she's a fantastic player. She, she really is. She's a, uh, She's arguably one of the best players in the country. She'll play professional volleyball. Hopefully she'll have a chance to play for the U.S. developmental team, yada, yada, yada. But I'll say this. At senior night, we drove – We obviously we live only two and a half hours from Louisville. So senior night we drove up, 
They played Notre Dame and then the University of Louisville staff did a really good job of taking them into their athletic center and they did these videos on the seniors and then they had their teammates come up and speak on the seniors. And it was one of the more rewarding experiences of my life to hear these girls talk about Tori and the impact she's had on their lives um, outside of volleyball. And I think this would be my message for any athlete is that uh, Sports has an, an amazing ability where you can impact a lot of people. You have a platform to impact people. And uh, when you play for something bigger than the sport, when you play for something bigger than yourself, you tend to be a better player and you have a ton of impact. And that's what I heard from these girls was like, hey, hopefully we win a national championship. And oh my gosh, we're so much better. And Tori's such a great setter. But, and here's the important stuff. And they talked about how it's never been just about volleyball for her. And it's always been about the relationships and, and building something special and, and playing for something bigger than, than themselves. And, and I think that's what I appreciate most about her journey. And that's why I tear up, you know, every time I watch her play is because I see uh, what she's playing for and how she's playing is more than just where she sets a ball, how she blocks the ball, how she passes the ball. And uh, it, I'm, I'm as proud of dad as you can be, not just how she's doing on the court, but what she's doing off the court. Well, congrats, man. And it's a really cool piece that's up on ESPN right now that talks about her path and talking to the different coaches and, and the setting relationship. Um, you know, again, I'm not exactly some volleyball pro out here, but I've gotten to know a bunch of the guys that play professionally out here. And there's there's just a thing about volleyball players that is, I don't know. I mean, every sport kind of has its own cliches and its own thing. But to read about her and, and being this person that's the ultimate teammate and such a great teammate that even one coach was like, I'm not sure anybody's ever going to want to play with you because a lot of teams have two setters and she's just perfect at it. She's just brilliant at this skill. And uh, it's a big reason why they're in the final four. So congrats to this point. We'll see how it goes, man. Thank you. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for bringing it up. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up no matter what. Because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice-cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. Continued economic responsibility demands restraint in government expenditure. And last year we achieved the largest ever recorded reduction in the budget deficit, 1.5 billion. Yesterday was a long day. I don't know when we're going to go abroad again. Kevin Clark joins us, uh, F1 enthusiast, also covers football, but we're going to just do F1 because it is over. Max Verstappen, your world champion, his first ever, uh, Jos Verstappen, his father, in attendance immediately with the hoodie and a lot of controversy. Imagine this, if you didn't watch the race or you don't watch F1, and thank God I've been watching this season for me to be even be able to make sense of what happened, and even then I'm not 100% sure, but imagine if you're watching football for the first time ever, it's the Super Bowl, and a team's down 21 points, and the other team's driving, and then all of a sudden, the people in charge of the rules were like, this drive is worth 22 points, and then the team <laughs> scores, and the other team's like, wait, they just won the Super Bowl? That's a little exaggeration, a bit, a bit of what happened. 
happen. But Verstappen wins. And just to run through a quick timeline of events, so if you watch the race, play along with us. If you didn't, this is why we're trying to do this, Kevin, and then we'll let you jump in. Um, sure. Max has pole at Abu Dhabi, the last race. They're even in points. You know, whoever finishes ahead of the other guy, again, with Beth fastest lap being a potential uh, issue in there uh, is going to win a world championship and Lewis is going for his eighth straight here Hamilton jumps Max at the start this is the second week in a row Max had a bad start where Hamilton got him Um, that was on a restart on the previous race not at the beginning and then Max got inside and obviously broke late kind of pushed Hamilton out Hamilton goes off and I think to avoid a crash, because Max is capable of anything, especially at this point, Hamilton, yes. I thought, gained a massive advantage by going off the track and then was just ahead of Max. And then Christian Horner, the principal at Red Bull, which is basically the coach, um, goes to Mike Massey, who's in charge of race command. And is like, look, what you got to give that back. You need to give that space back. And they're like, no, actually, he didn't gain any kind of advantage, which none of us could believe. But we thought perhaps that maybe that was in reaction to the way that Verstappen has raced lately and that they were just like, whatever, Max probably was so, or Lewis was so worried about Max, they went ahead and did that. But that in itself ended up becoming a major part of this. Max being behind Hamilton allowed him to make pit decisions when he wanted to make it. And it looked like even Hamilton was going to run away with this, but then Max gets the extra pit advantage, gets the fresher tires, but it still doesn't look like it's going to happen. And the Latifi, Williams, crashes on lap 52 of 58 Fresher tires for Max. We're thinking there's a chance. Nope, there's not going to be a chance because the safety car is still out. We've got five cars between Lewis and Max, and we don't let those cars through. And if we do let those cars through and pass the safety car to just have it be Lewis and Max, then you have to then wait until a lap after uh, the safety car comes off. Then the race would have been over. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, race command says, not only are we going to let the cars through, we're going to pull the safety car. We're going to give ourselves one lap for the entire thing. And because Max had much fresher tires, Lewis had no chance. And Max goes from driving around an hour and a half being like, I have no chance at this to winning a world championship. So I had to recap that so everybody understood. So there we go, Kevin. So I thought about the analogies. There's no perfect NFL analogy or American sports analogy to what happened. The closest thing to me, it wouldn't be the 22-point touchdown. It'd be more like the Super Bowl they got to drive 95 yards and there's an 80 yard spot foul. That's kind of the, the ref's interpretation of the rules. Like that, that, that to me is more analogous where it's like, you're really just putting a team in position to win and really determining the championship. Um, I, I read and listened to basically every pundit this morning uh, and last night. And I couldn't find one person who was like, Oh no, this was, this was the right decision. It was clearly the interpretation of the rules by Michael Massey. Who's had, a disaster of a season already. Uh, so he is basically, he does uh, like like a million things. Um, he's uh, the F1 technical department head. He's the safety delegate. And he's also in charge of this stuff. And all year long, people have said Massey's lost control of the season. A lot of that is because there was a really contentious title race where Max Verstappen was clearly, um, and Lewis too, uh, more comfortable crashing than giving an inch. We've talked about that over and over again here on Going Abroad, um, where these guys were, were going to go out on their shield. And Massey hasn't been up for it. Uh, I believe going into this race, Fernando Alonso said that Massey was, quote, too soft. Um, and so... When, when when something like this happens and, and he basically gets to determine the championship, he got bullied. Um, and, and, and we've seen that time and time again. So um, it was fascinating to see that. For me, I think that there are 
you know, I, this was I, Lewis said at the end he thought it was manufactured, right? Um, that was over the radio. There were a couple other drivers who who basically said that um, that this was manufactured for drama, and and I agree. Um, whether or not that's a good thing uh, I, for the fans, I'll kind of leave that open to interpretation. But I would say that there is no explanation to letting them race one one lap for the championship other than it looked cool. Like, you know that Twitter meme that goes around every time there's a cool catch that gets disallowed? Everybody says, hey, wouldn't it be cool that if something was so cool, we just let it stand? It's kind of what Michael Massey did. He let them race when they shouldn't have for one lap because it looked really, really, really cool, and he determined the championship because of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a better way of putting it because, you know, I was trying to sit there and figure out, like, if I had only just begun watching... Yeah. I would have I would have been like, I don't know if that was my first race, Kevin, I would have gone. What is this? Like, it was exciting, <laughs> but this doesn't make any sense. And I wouldn't have understood it for months. So luckily, you know, I've been watching off and on all season here and getting a sense of what's happening. But I'm still not understanding the rules. There was a protest by Mercedes that was ruled on. There was two separate protests by Mercedes based on what I read. And then they were both decided four hours later. I mean, it's unbelievable that we have the access to this. Imagine having Belichick or anybody mic'd up during a huge disagreement on a final drive in yeah. a Super Bowl, and then we get to consume it that way because Horner's screaming at Massey to say, get those cars out of there and give Max you know, a chance to chase down Lewis. But again, the rules were that if you're going to let those cars go ahead and then you take the safety car off, you can't right. do it all until like a lap later, then that would have been the end of the race. So he the commentators the are like, well... Right. So this way you're saying and the commentators were on it here where they're like, well, they can't move the cars out because if they do, then the race will be over. So at least this way, Max has some kind of chance, but he's going to have to get through five cars to even get to Lewis. And even with the faster tires, like with a lap to go, there's no way that's going to happen either. So this thing's entirely over. So that's how you're consuming it as a viewer. And then out of nowhere, they're like, oh, they're moving the cars and we're racing and we're racing. And you're listening to Horner yell at him. And then as Toto's watching this, Toto Wolf was the principal for Mercedes. He's going like, you've got to be kidding me. And he's screaming and we're hearing it as it's happening. No, no, Michael. No, no. You need to add another. You can't do the restart. Great radio. And then Massey, who I couldn't and I couldn't tell if Massey was being defiant or if it was his insecurity yeah. where he's like, it's a motor race, Toto. It's a motor we're race. We're going racing. We're racing. And you're like, OK, yeah. Yeah. Like, all right. I guess we're going racing. But it just felt like as exciting as it was and, you know, realizing that Max actually had this massive advantage because he didn't get the place back from Hamilton on that first corner. Yeah. Like this was as crazy a finish. And people that have done this for decades are like, this is the craziest season, the craziest finish. It had to be these two guys. It almost felt like it was a script that Massey wrote that he was like, yeah, somebody picked it up. He felt I think Michael Massey thought he was the main character of the race. Like, I feel like he's probably been under so much pressure. Imagine if there was one referee in all of football who made all the catch decisions and all the taunting decisions and all the quarterback hit decisions. It was one guy sitting in an office, okay? Imagine that, and then Michael Massey, at the end of the race, in the best season in, in decades, said, you know, you know what time it is? It's Michael Massey time. It is Michael Massey time, and hundreds of millions of people are watching Michael Massey time right now. That, that's what it looked like to me. And again, that's fine. We have ump shows all the time in Major League Baseball. That's what Sometimes these guys who call balls and strikes, that's what they want to do. That's why they got into the business. Now, there were a couple people, Brundle said this after the race, they got to break up Massey's job because he's doing too much. I mean, it, it, it's, it, he's doing like five different jobs. There should be a full-time race guy who just makes these decisions. Um, Damon Hill... 
a uh, longtime driver said he thought that the Red Bull was playing rough with Massey and probably right. Like, it's something we've talked about. The reason you lobby the refs over a seven game series is because at some point in the game seven, someone's going to be driving to the line and you're going to get a call because for six games before this, you've been complaining about, hey, watch what the power forward does here. Watch what the center does here. You've been complaining for six games, and in the seventh game with with 30 seconds to go, you get the foul call. That's why you lobby the refs. Red Bull won. Now, as far as just like excitement, this is Certainly since I started watching, what, four or five seasons ago, this is the best. You know, people talk about 2008 when Hamilton had to go from sixth to fifth in the final lap past Timo Glock and uh, and, and and Denai Massa, uh, who was actually celebrating the championship at that point um, on the last lap. Uh, before that, Schumacher and Damon Hill had an amazing finish in 1994 um, where they both wrecked, both retired. That was deemed a racing incident. That was actually a little bit analogous here where, where there was a decision to be made by the stewards about whether or not someone was going to win the championship. Obviously, Prost and... Um, and, and Nigel Mansell in 1988. Um, but this was amazing. Like this was this felt like fan service to me for having yes. watched the sport for so long, where we're sitting around saying, Oh man, can McLaren get into top four here? Like that's what I've been doing for four years. And now we get this. Like I was sitting, I, I, I don't know if I told you this, but I was sitting uh on the couch. There's a guy just hammer, just literally just right outside my window, just ho- like holding his hand on on a car horn. So there's a little little uh little distraction here. Is it Botas? It's both us. But like on the last lap, I don't know what happened. I was sitting on the couch. My wife was next to me. And when they started racing again, in the middle of the lap, I realized I had fallen off the couch and was just like on my knees on the carpet in the middle of my living room watching it because I, I had just like short circuited because of how exciting it was. Um, so I, I thought this this whole thing was amazing. Um, we should probably talk about Sergio Perez at some point being the ultimate uh, alpha teammate, but this was just unbelievable. Yeah, shout out Checo because there was a stretch there where he was trying to hold up Hamilton. It was some amazing driving. Of course, Hamilton, as all these guys do, are total hypocrites every single time. It's like, oh, it's pretty dangerous driving. And you're like, yeah, it's exactly what it is. He's trying to hold you off so that we're <laughs> enough racing. time to try to come in here and catch you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's also known as racing, which you would have done to him as well. Uh, there were some people saying, you know, Lewis should have pitted when Verstappen did, but that's a dicey yeah. one because you imagine having Hamilton pit. And then he loses track position, and then you actually don't have anything that happens the rest of the way. So Lewis yeah. was even kind of bitching about that. But that's what these guys do. I have learned throughout this season, it just doesn't matter. I mean, Verstappen thought that there was a conspiracy with 10 laps to go, and then later on he revisits it, and he's like, that's not what they're going to let the cars do. Then they let the cars through as if they're only trying to help out Mercedes, and then other people have argued. Honestly, it's not that different than talking about a lot of college football stuff, where everybody thinks yes. everybody else is out to get him the entire time, and where Hamilton is wondering if his his own pit crew and strategist is on his side. And it's like you couldn't pit in front of Verstappen, whereas if it were reversed, then Hamilton would have had that advantage of any pit decision, especially when you're out there um, with a safety car and the pitting is is not as detrimental to whatever your strategy is the rest of the way because everybody's going slower. Very simple. Um, So shout out to Checo. Could Uh, could have used a little more from Botas. (laughs) Botas was good. (laughs) Carlos Sainz had the quietest podium of all time. Um, Botas is constantly being reminded you can go faster, <laughs> right? It, it was really amazing because it's funny because Jeannie Gao, who does a great job on the BBC, like a month ago had floated this theory that I've been thinking about ever since that maybe Mercedes should have put George Russell in the, the, the second car, like to end the season because he'd give them more than Botas. Botas for like a month has been like, yeah, I'm good, man. Like I'm, I'm all set here. 
And I, I thought, and by the way, he really he celebrated the Constructor Championship yesterday. It was really, really funny to watch. He was really into to jumping in, and he was like, apparently there were some social media clips where he had, um, he was partying over the night. So Botas, Botas got his his ring. He's good. Um, but I, I just felt like when you look at Perez yesterday, who closed a gap. This is unbelievable. When uh, Perez and Hamilton started going at it, Verstappen was down eight point seven seconds. And by the time Perez got done with him, that gap was 1.7 seconds. That's unbelievable. That's the race. Like, that's the race. That's the reason it was, it, it was close. And so uh, Botas not being able to get in the mix there at all uh, actually did, did hurt Merck a little bit. Um, and so I think you, you kind of have to, to look at that. But listen, there are probably 100 things that, could, that should have gone, um, that could have won Lewis this race. That's just one of them. Um, obviously Massey being one of them, um, they're, they're, you know, just all if Latifi never crashes, we're going to be having this conversation. We're just having the boring Lewis wins conversation. Um, so this is, uh, a million things had to go right for Max, um, in the second half of that race. And they basically all went right. What I've learned too about the sport is that you're not going to get everything perfect all the time. There are going to be lulls. I mean, it's kind of like watching a horrible Thursday night football game or all seven of the one o'clocks yesterday. Although we ended up having some great finishes, um, you know, in, in, in the later window, we still got a couple close finishes in that first window that we definitely didn't expect that were going to happen. But having Checo hold off Hamilton, hold him up for Max, that's the kind of stuff where you go, that was one of the single most ent- entertaining moments of the entire F1 season for me. And if you get those every now and then sprinkled in, it's enough to want you coming back every single week. Because people that have just picked up the sport texting me that morning, and I woke up out here at like 4.45, just text push, ready to go. I spent the entire day tired <laughs> yesterday. Um, finished with a succession podcast with Sal and Simmons at about 10.30 last <laughs> night. But I even, you know, as, as they were looping through with the safety car, I was like, you know, I could probably go back to bed for a couple hours. And then I called you after everything that happened. I go, I'm going to the gym. I'm too pumped up yep. right now. There's no way I'm going to fall asleep. And part of that was Checo. And then, of course, the restart and being like, this is real. Um, yeah, the George Russell point is interesting because he freaked out on Twitter to a level that you were like, do you know you're not actually on Mercedes yet, George? Um <laughs> He's just letting everybody know that next year he's going to be the ultimate teammate. He's starting on by posting. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, do you know who came in fourth? Sonoda, right? Yeah, Yuki Sonoda. I just, I tell you, more I watched Yuki Sonoda, the more I got into it. And then um, <laughs> everybody's favorite, Daniel. Well, Daniel Ricardo, not a great finish. He had plans, I heard. Um, and then, yeah, again, 14 cars finished. <laughs> tough weekend for Haas. They came in last. But but Schumacher uh, was the guy who was going at it with Latifi that caused the crash. So Haas had as big a, a, uh, an impact on the World Drivers' Championship than, than McLaren or any of these guys. Okay, final thought here. Who in professional sports, maybe we could even throw in a college football coach with this. I have a few names, so maybe I can answer it because I'm putting you on the spot as you think. But who as a GM or a head coach would say, well, we run the Constructor Series championship, which is not even close to as important as a world championship for your driver. But there's definitely like, would Sam Hinkie go NBA title? Who cares? We won the Constructors. Um, Would UCF do that? Maybe. Maybe. It's it's a little bit of the UCF. as a program in general. It's a little bit of the UCF. I'm trying to think who, who kind of talks about who kind of creates their own fake goals and then and then surpasses those goals? Dan Dan Duquette. Duquette was the GM of the Red Sox. Um, 
and you know, there's there's different arguments of how how good or bad he was because for a stretch he was really really good. But he went on and he was a little stiff, and he went on a radio show and he said the Red Sox had spent more days in the first place than anybody else in the division when they lost the division. So the radio station used to play the drop of Duquette going more days in first place. So that felt a little constructors well, series. I mean, the the, the but, famous one would be the Indianapolis Colts raising a banner. I mean that was that was the all timer the 2014 AFC finalist banner, which is, I think Ursay might might raise a banner for the constructors championship for sure. Yeah, I could see Hinky just going like, "Well, I won, I won the award." You're like he lost the second round again, you know? And you're like, ah. I, "All right, that's I, it." I, um, no, wait, wait. I have, I have one more. I have one more. I have one more. Uh, even right. though he's won a lot, even though he's won a lot, Urban number one war- constructors championship banner guy for me in sports, Pat Riley, Heat culture, yeah, just like celebrate the W's, put the banner up. I I feel like he would he would use that as something. He would use that as like, hey, we accomplished what we set out to do, we did it. I feel like Pat Riley hangs a banner. I mean, Pat Riley, there were I don't know if they're still there. Pat Riley had a banner from Marino. He had a banner for Michael Jordan. I think the Jordan one is down. He had a banner for Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Morning's gold medals. Like he's a big yeah, banner. A point. It's, I didn't know. I mean, I always the Jordan Hardaway thing. Like I get it. Uh, the Jordan or excuse me, the Morning Hardaway thing. I I get yeah. Jordan. I don't know if it's still up or not. I know they've been made. I think they took it down. I think the whole thing. So, okay. Well, there you go. Banner Heat culture. Heat culture decided. Well, actually, we don't need Jordans up there, which I think is just the <laughs> evolving heat culture ness of the culture. All right, that is. What do we have hot stove wise? What's going on? Anything exciting? What's Vettel doing? Well, I mean, part of the problem it almost became like college football, right? Where like all of this stuff is decided. Who's going to what team has already been decided. Um, that gets decided in the second half of the season. So we already know Russell's going to Merck. Um, Chico Perez has just job security for life. Like he's never going to go anywhere. He's also I don't even I don't know what the highest civilian honor in the Netherlands is, but Perez is definitely in the mix to get it. I don't know if they knight people down there, but like he's definitely uh, one of the top people in the Netherlands right now. So he's good at Red Bull. Um, everything else is 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 pretty much decided. So the big thing now I, I heard this a lot over the past couple of days is figuring out especially when they get to Barcelona to do testing, who's got it for next year? Because they're changing everything about the rules as far as how the cars are built. And everyone's saying, okay, did Red Bull blow all of their capital on this year? Did they put all of their research and design and upgrading the car this year? What do they have next year? Um, I think I read in 2009 that this happened where uh, in 2008, two teams just kind of went for broke the year before. And then in 2009, there was much more parity. Everything got shaken up, almost a very similar situation. So it comes down to how much did Mercedes have an eye on next year? How much did Red Bull have an eye on next year? And did McLaren and Ferrari, people think maybe they're going to be dangerous next year. Did th- were those guys in their bag over the second half of this season comp- preparing for next season? That's the biggest thing to watch. We'll see it in Barcelona in the winter. We'll, maybe we'll hear some wind tunnel reports that's what happens in January. Some wind tunnel reports um, about who, who's got it next year. And I'm going next year. I can't wait. I got to figure out the one that's going to be most American friendly. I got to figure out the best spot for a Zoom connection um, to do it. So I'm, I'm picking somewhere. I mean, I'm kind of a boat guy, but I know Monaco's not that exciting of a race. I heard the town isn't that bad. Um, so I think <laughs> if you're going to do it, you might just have to do it right. You know, I don't know. I don't know, but Japan always wanted to go. 
All right, we're just going to brainstorm. We're going to workshop <laughs> this, and uh, we'll figure it out. Thank you all season, Kevin, for this, and then we'll talk football to you at some point again here soon. Thanks. See you, buddy. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip, from free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more. Book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow you shine. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate, hate, is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where... Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in available in your choice of ranch barbecue and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add on to your meal food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Uh, just Kyle today. Saruti off? Is Saruti off today or just um, caught up with other stuff? Kyle. I don't know. That guy might be taking a vacation. I don't think he's taken one since he started here. So, good for him. Plus, we get to be alone at last. I know he took some other... T- well, he vacationed, but he worked. Um, right. I yeah, know another count. time. So that, that might be what he's doing because he still was working through the weekend. So, all right. Um, I clicked on everything this morning. was like, oh, okay, so we're good to go. But we know Kyle's the star of the segment. No uh, no offense to Saruti or anything like that. So let's get to it. All right. Um, 62265. Put up 390 with ease in my prime with ease. So if you put up 390 with ease, why did you never put on 400 or 405? Just a question. Strained Peck never allowed me to put up four bills. Oh, there you go. So put it up 390 with ease and prime, but Strained Peck never got him to four. All right, maybe. I don't know. Just throwing it up. Just asking. Huge fan of the show. I developed a seemingly bad habit at work during the pandemic and need guidance on how to proceed. All right, so bad habit at work. For context, I am a male English teacher at my high school in my hometown. However, nothing like the stereotype that probably just came to your mind. Unlike many, well, dude, the, the 390, you know, Proust in 390, yeah. I would have thought he was a history teacher with those stats. You think so? Yeah. I don't know. I don't... I don't know if... uh, I don't know if I assume anything anymore. You know what I'm saying? That's a good good policy. I take it back. Yeah. Okay. All right. So... Unlike many of my colleagues, uh, avid sports fan, I played college football and sports a primary talking point in most of my conversations. Since I was a youngster, I have a serious preference for wearing athletic clothes. I feel most, hey, hear you, brother. I feel most comfortable when I'm wearing them. Wearing jeans for leisure around the house seems asinine to me on my drive home. Jeans at the house, I'll never understand. That's weird. Yeah. I mean, I kind of understood it when we were younger. Um, I understand if you're uh, somebody working outside working with your hands maybe you're 
maybe you're a supervisor and you get a you get a hat, you get a fancy hat and all that kind of stuff, and you come home and you you sit and wear jeans. So the older crowd listening to this being like, what the hell's wrong with jeans at the house? I would just tell you, like, if I came home from an office job, the idea now in my life that I'd put on a pair of jeans and go cool when there's so many other options, joggers or just five inch inseams from legends. Um, I, I don't wear pants a ton. Uh, that's for sure. Um, but I also have a weird job now where I'd never go anywhere. All right. So, um, here we go on my drive home. I long for the moment I can throw off my work clothes and proceed in my natural outfit. Uh, anyway, here's the habit. When I arrive at school in the morning, I generally see the principal and colleagues while I clock in at the front office. Then I walk to my classroom, which is at the farthest end of the school. Typically nobody comes down there. I teach my first class, uh, which ends at nine 30. I have planning from nine 30 to 11 30. When the bell rings to end first period, I immediately head to the teacher bathroom, to change into some athletic clothes that I've packed in my bag. It's usually a pair of black Nike fleece pants and a shirt. (laughs) I wear this for the rest of the day. And my other two classes, 95% of the time, I go relatively unnoticed. A few comments here and there, but nothing aggressive. Until the other day, exclamation point. I leave the bathroom fully changed with a duffel bag in my hand. The assistant principal walks by and looks at me with a perplexed expression. She sort of nods at me and glances down at the duffel bag, does not say anything about it. Not sure if she just didn't notice, didn't care, or made a mental note address uh, to address this later. I probably do the change three days a week. Our school typically has a professional <laughs> attire for teachers, meaning a polo, khaki sneakers, no tuck in or tie rules. My question is, how long can I keep getting away with this? Do I have the green light to keep it going? Does an athletic guy like yourself sympathize at all with my predicament? Thanks. I mean, I, I do and I don't. Stop changing into workout clothes at school. <laughs> you know, if you if you don't want this to be an issue, stop doing it. I can totally understand, even if it's not comfortable for you, if people think this is outdated or whatever. If you're a teacher at a high school and you're going to chest day outfit at 1130 for the rest of the day, I'm, I, I don't know. It, it kind of like red flags a little bit that you would just be okay with this yourself, knowing that you're opening yourself up potentially to criticism. Like you may be getting away with it, Maybe there's some schools that don't care. Um, I'm curious to see if she's going to bring this up with you again. But if they have a dress code and you're saying, fuck that by 1130, you're just putting yourself in a position of having to deal with a battle that I think is a really avoidable battle. Buy some different clothes. Buy some polos from from some of the athletic wear places now. They're as comfortable as any workout shirt you're going to wear. You know what I mean? Grab some of their pants, their stretchy pants that look like dress pants that are totally fine. Like that's... That's the solution to this. So I just, I don't understand why any of us, not to say I'm completely free of it in my own personal resume, but I don't understand why we would put ourselves in situations where, you know, when you're at a place like this, that's, it's not corporate, but it's a school and there's kids and there's definitely going to some people that are talking shit about you now behind your back and then wondering how serious you are, wondering how mature you are, asking questions that might not even be fair, but this is probably what's going to happen. So I don't know why you'd even invite this into your professional life. So I would say I don't have a ton of sympathy, even if I understand the comfort decision, knowing that now, I don't know, like, why would you do this? Why would you change the perception of you at work if you've done a, a really good job with everything else. Now, if you haven't done a good, really good job with everything else, now this like just gets added to the pile of like, what the hell's up with 6'2", 265? Kyle? Yeah, Guy, it sounds like you're a gym teacher trapped in an English teacher's body, and that's the only guy who gets to wear what you want no, to wear. No, no, no. 
in an English teacher's role because he's okay. definitely not in an English teacher's body at 62265. Oh, uh, well, I think I you're just, assuming again. We've already been over this. Whatever. What can you do? All I'm saying is uh, I think okay. I think he like the rules are only different for like one one sort of uh, role in that school. It's not your role. Um, and it's just it's clear. I think it's going to be your life's going to go a lot better professionally or you might even be wondering about stuff like I don't know. I'm pretty sure that uh, teacher raises aren't like I'm pretty sure it's like a an actual grid system. It's not like, hey, you've been teaching the hell out of those kids this year. You're going to get way more money. But I just think maybe stuff will happen and you'll even it'll be in the back of your head. It's like, fuck, is it because I wear shorts three days a week or is it because I wear my Adidas things and somebody dropped in? Like, it's just you're not going to want to do it when um, there's like a, a no there's an unwritten rule at the ringer. I mean, we haven't been in the office in forever, but there was like a no shorts policy. And, um, you know, I was told I was told a couple times uh, early on, I kept forgetting. And even when I'd go into like uh, drop something off, I would have to make sure nobody saw me. And it just I felt dirty and I just I stopped doing it. And then the only other thing that happened was when uh, <laughs> when Spotify bought us uh, the day of the meeting, they rented out something across the street. Eck. Daniel Eck came, like all the people just to like ask questions. Those guys are busy, you know, and I was wearing a fucking Harley Davidson cutoff sleeveless vest and um, and a thermal. And uh, the ad lady who's not here anymore, shout out Carrie Allen. She was like, hey, dude, you 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 just got bought by Spotify. You're going to need to start wearing some sleeves. And we have we haven't really been back to work since like the week after that. So I haven't really got a chance to make a good impression next time. But next time I come in the office, you best believe there's going to be some fucking sleeves on me, probably even a collar. So just it just make that important to you. you. Even like I feel most comfortable in Harley Davidson with no sleeves. I do, but um, I just I know it's important. Even me, even me, I know it's important. So you should be able to put some buttons together and maybe even a belt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just said even me, which is which is really you know kind of the point here. All right, uh, this is a good one. Ruin my boss's career. A little longer, but it's worth it. What's up? Early to mid 20s, 5'10, 165, specifically athletic. My cardio is next level. <laughs> awesome. Uh, but I have the hand eye coordination of a second grader. I'm a huge runner <laughs> when I play a sport like pickup basketball. I only get hustle stats, typically because I'm the only guy still running up and down the court after an hour and a half, but the defense doesn't even need to guard me within five feet of the basket. Right. A lot of, a lot of just pick, picking up, cleaning up other people's layups. I totally get it. All right. Little background. Maybe a funny dribbler. Yeah. I mean, look, if you don't dribble a basketball, like somebody we've gotten, there's this guy that wrote this really long pickup one that Kyle sent me where it, it, it sounds like he, he loves basketball, but every pickup basketball experience is absolutely miserable because he's admitting he's not that good. If you don't start um, dribbling a basketball at a very early age, it's a very hard thing to develop later on. I've basically lost my handle because I didn't play any pickup hoops because of the leg thing and being with Van Pelt those four years, I couldn't find like a decent place to even go get a pickup game. And then when I came back at, I don't know, was it 30? When did I get that gig? I think I started like from 34 to 38 and playing pickup basketball. So don't, one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. And I've since then just never really been the same player. I mean, it's not even close, but this guy like wrote in going, what do I need to do? I don't, if you're in your thirties and you can't fucking dribble, I don't know that there's a lot of help. Like you can go watch the Drew Hanlon videos if you want and get in the garage every morning and have the iPad down there and start drilling yourself to death. I guess you could start doing that. Um, but for those of you that are married, telling your wife, actually, I would love to hear that story. Telling your wife, Hey, I'm going to start working on, you know, improving my handle. Rosillo talked about some of these <laughs> Drew Hanlon videos and it's even possible, but you know, we've had a lot of people chime in about like, what do I do if I'm not good at basketball? 
it, it's like a lot of things. Like if you don't, if you don't develop it early on, racquetball, baby. There's other stuff out there. Yeah, this one guy. I'll read it later, but I, I my. My advice to him would have been just pick a different sport. You're in your own head about how miserable of a time you're having when you're playing pickup basketball the entire time. I'm uh, I'm dealing with something, so I went and played the other day. Played awful, awful. I mean, really bad. And then I threw up an air ball when we were shooting in, and some guy looked at me and was like, "No, no, right online." And I don't know him, and he smirked, and I just I was <laughs> fucking pissed, and I was serious. And I looked at him, I said, "I remember you said that," and I left. I had to leave anyway because I was going to sit and wait out the game, but so there's something wrong. I'll find out Wednesday when the fuck it is. All right, cool. Anyway, a um, <laughs> little background before the story. I was dating this girl. I love when people send in their emails too, and they're like, he read one sentence and then told 20 minutes worth of stories, so I stopped listening to the podcast. All right, back, back to our guy. A little background before the story. I was dating this girl all throughout college, but come graduation time, I get a job across the country in a bigger city. I'm pumped. It's a great job in finance. My girlfriend, not so much. She wanted to stay in the small town she grew up in. I guess uh, had the same dream for me. I made it clear from the jump I wouldn't do that. Um, but I both, uh, yeah, so I guess we both thought the other would come around for our idea of the next step. All right, all right, it happens. I take the job. We're trying long distance for about a year. It becomes more and more apparent our lives are going in opposite directions. I'm finding success. Uh, my new job, meeting new people, seeing new places, typical post-college stuff. I start becoming very close to my coworkers. We're going out for drinks one or two times a week. There's six or 10 of us ranging from just graduated to mid thirties. Eventually my girlfriend and I reach a tipping point. And I break up with her. She's devastated. I care about her a lot, uh, but knew it was dead. Uh, knew it was a dead end road. So I had to make the call. I come to my office, tell the buddies at work. They instantly make a game plan to go out after work and get hammered. Sounds like a good idea, right? That's what you do. That's what you do. You're young happens i mean you're gonna get hammered anyway you didn't need a reason to if you're gonna get hammered so a lot of this stuff i don't know how necessary it was the email because the, the the point that we get to anyway he's i love a good background story as we know when i tell stories so i'm not gonna sit here and criticize the email for doing the exact same fucking thing i do all the time all right so they're going around lobbying to get a bunch of our coworkers to go out for happy hour not telling people that it's for me but more of a casual it's friday let's get drinks kind of thing every Every quote, I'm going to try to do corporate voice. Uh, towards the end of the day, there are about 30 plus people coming out. Holy we shit. hit this tap room, pretty calm and professional, but the drinks are flowing. Next thing I know, I'm having a deep conversation with my boss about my ex-girlfriend of about um, 18 hours. This doesn't make any sense. The night didn't go 18 hours. Uh, I'm having a deep conversation with my boss about my ex-girlfriend for hours. Let's just say that. Great. She's a very attractive woman. This is the boss. Um, she's in her mid thirties. There's a 13 year age gap. We've always had a solid uh-oh, friendly relationship, but this conversation felt different. Fast forward a couple hours. There are about 15 to 20 people still hanging. So we decided to change the scene to more of a Friday night appropriate bar. By this time, we're all drunk, taking shots. The details get a little fuzzy at this point because of the drinking. But next thing I know, I'm full on intertwined with my boss in the middle of this bar. And after we end up at her house, you can fill in the rest. Dun, dun, dun. at this point it's like 3 to 4 a.m. and I'm sobering up somewhat my conscience starts kicking in and I just get up to call an Uber phone's dead what next <laughs> instead of asking to borrow a charger I just said I'm leaving I walk out of her door and start running home cardio comes full circle it's like six miles and I'm in dress shoes feet were ruined the next day not my brightest moment I love that you ran six miles in the dress shoes you know what though sometimes you just gotta go home so 
Um, we go back to work on Monday, and it's awkward as can be. Everyone saw us in the bar and saw us leave together. Half the people thought I was awesome. Half thought I was a scumbag. I understood both. But my boss, on the other hand, was getting the worst of it. She's getting treated like she has the plague. And people don't have the plague now. That's just my addition to that. Uh, a couple weeks go by, my negative persona starts fading. I made it clear I'd broken up with my girlfriend before and was vulnerable. People got that. She, though, is now missing two to four times a week, saying she's sick. She won't look at or talk to me when she is there. She had a pretty solid trajectory at the company until now. I assume she's probably going to get fired if this continues. What's my move? <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, as you noticed, as the weeks have gone by, it, this all starts to fade. Like if OJ can go to South Beach and have people ask him to take pictures, then you can hook up with your boss and have people get over it. I mean, if there's one thing that I constantly stress, and it's why I don't usually get worked up about too many things that happen in the world that I deal with, is that almost all of the reaction, whatever it is in the moment, it all fades because we just have other stuff to do. And we are we can act like something is the end of the world. And then it's like, oh, actually, that wasn't the end of the world. So I kind of go with that. Although when there is a time where it feels like something will be the end of the world, I'll probably just be like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Then it'll be the end of the world, right? Um, so this will all fade. It'll all start to go away. And it certainly will for you. For the people who thought you were a scumbag, I don't think that's really cool because you are young. You got drunk. And that's it. Um you know, this shit happens. It's been happening a long time. But the work part of it, yeah, that dynamic's a little weird. I got to tell you, I don't know that I have a ton of advice on this one. I mean, I know a lot of times it's kind of just take it head on and talk to everybody about it. But you can't really talk on her behalf, right? You can't really talk to her about it. I mean, if she's ignoring you, you're probably going to have to have that conversation at some point. But if the rest of the office doesn't respect her because she hooked up with some apparently sick cardio guy that's not as great at hoops but is really good in this hustle place, then, you know, that's pretty unfair because this shit happens all the time. But again, it's human nature. Like, all of a sudden, if she does a really good job and she had this one-off with you and everybody saw it, um, you know, I don't know. That's that's pretty strict. But again, I'm, I'm not the most strict person anyway. I do think making out at a bar is kind of weird. Um, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was like the last time it had happened. It was somebody I'd met and she was kind of like pressing up on me and just started trying to make out with me in front of everybody. And I was like, all right, we need to, we need to fucking calm this down uh, really quick because I feel like a loser. Um, but, you know, you went for it. Shots, Friday, the math, all of it. I don't really know. I mean, other than <laughs> if you went to her and said, hey, do you want to tell everybody we're actually dating? So <laughs> would that help? Do you want to do a fake relationship here? Will that help? And then we can have like an amicable breakup a month like a from media now. Stunt? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> can we pretend that we've actually been dating and that wasn't even the first time we hung out? But then the timeline of the ex-girlfriend thing, uh, you know, again, people are going to get over this, but I don't know how you can fix the relationship between the boss and all of the subordinates who are your coworkers because that's a weird position to be in. Like, what are you supposed to do? Just address everybody? Be like, hey, house meeting and stand up and just go, all right, everybody, you need to be cooler to Deb, right? Like, you can't really do that. And I don't know how she's going to earn it back. And she's calling in sick all the time and missing up to four days a week. She's just making it worse. Like, there are people when you go through something, like, the best thing to do is just put your head down and go through it. Show up every day and be like, fuck it. I don't care. I made out with a 23-year-old. You see how fast he is? 
see his cardio times. So um, I don't really have a great plan for you unless I'm, you know, Kyle, what do you think? I mean, this is like a, we can't get away from the office. This is a Jan Levison Gould situation where it's, uh, you know, 80% of the office, it, you know, loves Michael and is high-fiving him for it. And then, you know, the peop- the person who gets the respect loss for them is Jan. Um, and that's just how it, that's just how it is. The warehouse is a hundred percent behind Michael. And then, you know, guys like Kevin and all those guys in the office are like, Oh yeah. And then people are like, why the hell would she do that? Some of them feel bad for Jan. Some of them lose respect for her. And that's just, that's kind of the nature of the situation where it's the boss and the other person. Um, so I mean, joking aside, I think it's just, you gotta hope so you could also take a page out of Michael's book and start spreading rumors about other people doing weird shit. Um, no, don't do that. I just mean like, like holiday parties from from my limited experience is like there's always somebody who who's like get feeling a holiday party a little too much i know this isn't that but you know you went to a second bar the drinks were flowing i'm sure some sure people will understand and i think i think time does heal all wounds and i don't know the only thing is sometimes you hear people talk about holiday parties from 15 years ago and i hope that's not one of those situations i doubt it is it's that it doesn't sound like Anybody was like removing articles of clothing or, you know, breaking shit or anything. But, you know, I guess you just got to hope something else noteworthy happens. I think that's it. But I don't think she'll have to quit or be fired. I mean, that sounds like it would go down a, a road that could be messy if somebody was to fire her. I think you just got to hope something else happens. Right. I just think people can be real hypocrites about this. You know, um, she's the boss. She's the one person. And then the, there's easily like a handful of people that are criticizing her or have lost respect for her that are probably... You know, if you were in that situation, do you know exactly? You can sit there and say, hey, I would never do this. That's not something you should do. But think about all the people that probably went into a position feeling that way, being determined, never thinking they would ever be um, susceptible to this, you know, allow themselves to be vulnerable. But I don't know if you're good. I mean, we got some really good looking emailers apparently on the show here. But if you're a good looking guy and you're young and you've had this great relationship and then she's been by herself and she's lonely and she's, you know, again, once you start drinking, everybody starts saying, fuck it internally. Um, Love that. Yeah, no, but I mean, look, I mean, like it can make a lot of sense. But then uh, the problem is if she's not showing up to work, if she's continuously weeks removed from this blowing off work all the time because she's embarrassed then she's going to have to work somewhere else or you're going to have to fake engagement this so that then she feels comfortable, which would be super awkward because then you're going to have to fake break off the fake engagement at some point. So um, good luck with all that. Thank you to Kyle and really fun podcast. F1 season's over. Sucks. That was an unbelievable race. Um, that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun doing that stuff. I was, I was, you know, it went from kind of a joke to then being entertained and then looking forward to it. And I, all night I went to bed early on, on Saturday. And I kept waking up every hour like Christmas being like, what? Abu Dhabi, let's go. Because I didn't want to miss it. I didn't want to miss it live this point. I wanted to take Send it. me so your I- obscure sports, guys. We need another one. We have a void now. We need uh, every six shows. We need something. Just send it to me. Ryan won't look. Send it to me. Your obscure sports. I'll tell you this. I actually don't want. I mean, we could do it for the podcast, but I don't. That fall basketball starting even earlier overlap and then 5 a.m. race into ba- you know football starts five hours from now that's uh preferably that's american then preferably american yeah. something that's in our time zone. to consume yeah. maybe tuesday afternoons or something like that <laughs> all right we'll talk to you on wednesday